0: So we are in chapter 6. Woo. Chapter 6 already, I can hardly believe it. And we did, we actually did chapter 5 and 2 sermons. A, a third of the amount it took to do all the other, each of the other chapters. We're cruising. Alright, so this morning the text is chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, going through verse 6. Uh, I will read those for us now. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we we thank you for this, your service. We thank you for all the hands that went into um, coming here and providing everything that we needed to worship you, all the work that went on behind the scenes. We thank you for those servants. We thank you, Lord God, for calling us out of the world. We thank you for um, providing us a place to worship. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, now that as we open it, um, especially uh, portions that we're so familiar with, that you would give us a fresh set of eyes and ears and and an open heart to receive um, the message that you have for each individual person in this room. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there's um, a ton of history in this particular story. Um, and, and what I found was actually there, there's a lot of information about a few verses in this section and then a bunch of verses where there's almost nothing said. <laughs> and the reason is, and I'm not even going to even give it a nod of dissent, uh, assent by even going there. I'm just mentioning it now and I'm going to let it go. This section has been worked over so many times because in the Catholic-Protestant debate about whether Mary was a perpetual virgin or not, uh, the discussion has always in this section been about his brothers. Because there is a Catholic doctrine that she was not only a virgin when she conceived Jesus, but she was perpetually a virgin. She never had any other children. And I don't know if you're like me, when I first heard that, I, was, I, thought, I, I just laughed. I just laughed. He's got brothers. He's always got brothers. There's nothing at all, nothing, in any reasonable way to think that Mary was always a virgin, right? And, and they have to do all kinds of crazy things to this particular text to explain who these brothers are, sisters, brothers. And they say it's cousins. They say it's uh, Joseph's children from another marriage because he was super old. That's why he's dead now, right? And Mary's this perpetual virgin widow or something. I don't know. It's crazy, Bill. So I just I'm going to just put that out there. I'm going to set it aside. It created a little extra work for me because it's like, could you guys say a few things about these other verses, right? (laughs) So it's fascinating, but we're not going to spend any more time on that. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Done. Cool. (laughs) Amen. Amen. There we go. My Protestant bona fides are well established with the rest of you. Now, the other thing is it says hometown. Now, what is Jesus's hometown? There might be some confusion there. We know where he was born, Bethlehem, but we also know that he was from Nazareth. So when they say hometown there, what what do they mean? Well, it never says. But given the fact that everyone in this town knows who he is and knows his family and his sisters remain in that town, um, I think we can make the educated assumption that it's actually not Bethlehem, it's Nazareth. The other thing is Nazareth was only 25 miles from where we left Jesus the last time in Ch- at the end of chapter 5. It's only 25 miles away. And the way Mark does it, he doesn't explain the journey. He doesn't say anything about the time frame. He doesn't say anything that happened on the way. It's just Jesus is at one point getting out of a boat, heals some people, and then ba- bada bing, bada boom, he's 25 miles inland. Just like that. No explanation. 25 miles southeast of the Sea of Galilee. It's very small. It's very obscure. It covered a mere 60 acres on the rocky hilltop in the uh, Galilean mountains, and it housed, at the time uh, of Jesus' uh, growing up there, only 500 people. Uh, that's not many. I, my graduating class from high school was 303. Uh, and, and it may be shocking, but you can't actually know that many people on some level. So Jesus goes back to this town, and he pretty much knows everybody. Uh, so I think some of you are from towns similar to the size here. And when you go back, you run into people you know everywhere, right? So Jesus heads back there. We don't know why. He does. And when he gets there, he he has a reception that is quite unlike uh, anything that he's had before, and anything unlike anything that he himself has expected. He is not often startled by what happens, right? He's the God-man. But you see his humanity in, in here is that he is startled. He's startled by the level of unbelief in his own town. Now, Chapter 6, verse 1 through 6, is is connected sharply, right, directly to some verses that we've already covered. This is the end of a a section, right? When they break Mark down into sections, this is the end of the second section. The end of the first section was chapter 3, verse 6, and it included um, the rejection of Jesus by the uh, officials. Now what you have at the end of this section is the rejection of Jesus by his hometown. Now that's a theme. I'm going to put that out there. Remember, rejection. This is the second time now they're going to end a section with rejection. The other thing that it's directly connected to is chapter 3, verse 21 and 31 through 35, where his family came to see him uh, because they thought he was out of his mind, and he rejected them. They didn't so much reject him, he rejected them. That's also important to remember. It's important to, um, to see that the fact that Jesus places his own relatives and even his own household in the category other than that of believer believer or disciple. He's dr- redrawing the boundaries of Israel, and he's redrawing the boundaries of his own family. Remember, he just left the woman with the hemorrhage, who, whom he called daughter. He's identifying his family as being them, or his own household, the people he grew up with, he identifies as being completely other. He, he's rejected them entirely. So verses 2 through 3, chapter 6. Let me read those. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The Nazarenes are startled to hear that Jesus is teaching as a rabbi with a following like a rabbi when he hadn't ever received the training of a rabbi. He was not qualified to be a teacher because he hadn't studied with or been a disciple of one. In those days, you don't just set up shop as your own thing. If you want to be a rabbi, you find a rabbi and you follow him around for a few years and then you uh, become his disciple and after a certain amount of time, you go out on your own. Well, Jesus had left his hometown at some point. He's 33 years old, approximately, 33, 34, which is the age that a man would become a priest in the temple of God in the Old Testament. So this is why he's finally entered into his ministry. He's of age. So who knows how long he's been gone. But the last time he left, he was not a rabbi. He was a carpenter. And so who does he think he is now acting like a rabbi? The result of Jesus' teaching in the synagogue is not accolades and, but astonishment or as the Greek verb literally means, they were knocked out by what he said. They were incredulous. What was, what was the wisdom that had been given to him, and what was the meaning of the mighty works performed through his hands? Now, in both of those cases, nobody is disagreeing with the fact that he's doing mighty works. Nobody is denying the fact that he's teaching great things. Nobody has a problem with that. Nobody at this point is denying him, saying, well, what you're saying is filthy and dirty. What, what, you're, you're not really raising people from the dead. Nobody's arguing with the facts. They're arguing with the source. Where does this guy get the authority? Where does this guy get the wisdom? He's clearly got wisdom. <laughs> Even that is funny, right? They're not denying that he's wise. They're, they're, they're incredulous about where it came from. They see Jesus as someone who is exceeding not only his expectations, but is rather overreaching the expectations, right? Even the Nazarenes don't think anything good comes out of Nazareth. Even his own people are like, nothing good comes out of here. Great rabbis don't come from here. Who does this guy think he is? This will, in fact, be the first time in Mark that we find Jesus in a... Oh, this will be the last time in Mark. Remember, it's been a while since he's been in a synagogue, and he's there now, and this is the last time. He hasn't been in the synagogues because the synagogues have rejected him. So he thought, okay, well, I, I bet I would be accepted in the synagogue in my own town because that's where I had, like, you know, that's where I had my bar mitzvah and whatnot. That's where I was circumcised there. Of course they'll accept me there. And he goes there, and what do they do? They reject him. And it's the last time that he'll ever step foot in a synagogue. More than just a matter of familiarity breeding contempt, the incredulity comes from the common mentality in every age that geographical and hereditary origins determine who a person is and what his capacities will always be even in the egalitarian age in which we live right even in this egalitarian age it's hard to believe that people overcome hereditary and geographical issues right this is what social justice is all about we've got to help the people get out of the inner city that that where there's a certain economic level where there's a certain health right healthiness we have, to, we have to break those barriers because you can't break those barriers in any other way unless you go in and you forcibly do it. So you can see this assumption that where you come from and who you're related to has a great deal to do with your potential in life. And, and, and to these Nazarenes, they are, they are offended by what Jesus, how, how far Jesus is willing to go with who he thinks he is and where he comes from and what authority he has. To them, he is well outside of the bounds. They are not concerned with whether he can. They are concerned with how and from where it comes. And this becomes an issue. From one twenty two onwards, his authority has been the problem. Why aren't your disciples following the laws? Where do you get off teaching these things? Right? Is he more powerful than the demons, or are the demons more powerful than him? His authority, since chapter 1, verse 22, has been the issue everywhere he goes. Everywhere he goes. and and the people in his hometown are such good, faithful Jews that they hear what he's preaching and they see what he's doing. And it's so contrary, so contrary to the ideology of Israel at the time that even though they know this little boy, right? This is the little boy who played King David in all the school plays. And now here he comes acting like he's King David. Where does he get off doing such a thing? They're offended at him. Offended. Now, there's a few linguistical things that we need to cover. One of them is that a very common misunderstanding about Jesus and his father. His father Joseph, I mean, not his father God. But was Joseph a carpenter? Right. We all were, were used to this. Jesus was a carpenter. His father was a carpenter. And, and what the word that they use here, say, isn't this the carpenter? The word is not a carpenter as we understand it. It's a builder. The word that they use could be used of a shipbuilder. It could be used of somebody who makes uh, doorknobs. It could be somebody who works in wood, works in stone. The better translation is that he was a builder. Jesus was a general contractor, right? You want to hang some drywall, you get Jesus. You want to put some flooring in, you get Jesus. You need to find a good plumber? Well, he can't do it. He's a general contractor. He finds a plumber, right? This is always how it works with general contractors. They can either do it or they know who can do it. And so Jesus isn't a, a woodworker like we understand him, right? We, that word carpenter now, when you look it up in the English dictionary, it says woodworker. But that's not what he is. He's a, he's a, a builder. What's very interesting is that just be, when he was about a teenager, he was about that age, Herod was building a new palace in the neighborhood. And, and he had all the wor- woodworkers and builders and masons and everything come from far and wide to build this, this um, palace of his, so it's quite possible at some point Jesus as a teenager was a laborer building the throne and, and, and the palace of Herod, the false king, which I find that just fascinating, right? Because there's not very much known about his life, but he could, quite, he could have been living at Herod's household, working on Herod's house. It's kind of funny to me. The common understanding of Jesus and Joseph is that they were carpenters, but in fact, they were builders. They could work in anything, right? So here's the guy, Jesus, in the synagogue. I remember him. He installed my front door. He was a good kid. But now he's trying to tell me what the book of Isaiah means, and that's offensive to me, right? This is the guy who, who helped install right, the sink, and now he's going to tell me who King David is and isn't and who his heir is and isn't. There's another fascinating thing here. And I, and I find this particularly interesting as a person who likes literature. But there is a, a character in folklore. Generally, uh, g- he goes by the name of Faust. Now, if you know literature at all, okay, Faust is the most famous of these characters. And Faust, uh, met; s- he wanted power, and he wanted authority. He wanted wisdom. And so he was willing to trade his soul to get it. So Faustian characters are very common in folklore. Almost all cultures have them. Uh, if you go to Acts chapter 8, there's someone there named Simon Magus who's willing to pay the uh, apostles money in order to get the Holy Spirit. <laughs> there's uh, a character that I like called Pan Twardowski that the Polish people have. And what they've done, is they've mixed the, this some demigod Pan with this idea of Faust. And Pan is always making these deals with his soul, but he's always tricking everyone out of it. So he's getting all the rewards, but he keeps his soul. It's kind of funny. The uh, Americans also have a Faustian character, if you know blues music at all. His name is Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson loved playing the guitar. And he would go to Gen Joints, and he would play guitar, and he was so bad that everyone who heard him would say, please stop playing the guitar, please. He was really good at playing the, mouth harp, the harmonica, but he never wanted to play the harmonica. He wanted to play the guitar. So, the st- so he, he gets offended by this, and he leaves. And a short while later, not that long he suddenly shows up back in the gin joints and he plays the blues like nobody. Like nobody. You got guys coming down from New York who want him to sing in a can for money and make records because the blues is so good. So everybody starts asking him, well, how did you get so good? He says, well, you know, I went down to the crossroads at midnight and Satan was there and all I had to do was give him my soul, he tuned my guitar, bada bing, bada boom, here I am. (laughs) Right? Whenever we come up against great power, Great ability, right? When there can't be a good explanation for it, we, we, we like this is a common thing with cultures throughout the ages. Where does this come from? Uh, it can't be somewhere good. Now, Jesus is, I think, the original Faustian character for this reason. In Mark, it doesn't say anything about what he did out in, in the wilderness when he met Satan. And the story's gotten out, though, that he went out there. And and when you actually read the story in Luke, what happens? He goes out there and Satan says, oh, if you worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. So even already, I believe, in Jesus' own day, there are, right, what have the official synagogue leaders said? They've said, well, he's of Beelzebub. He's in line with Satan. And so what you have is the people in his hometown are so willing to reject his teaching, so willing... Unwilling to believe that anything good can come out of Nazareth, that they are willing to malign him and to accuse him and to insult him about his origins. Where does this guy get off teaching these things? Now, that might seem like a stretch. Right? That might seem like a stretch, but let's look at exactly what they say. They say, this is the son of Mary. And... Right? Okay. It's the son of Mary. We all know he's the son of Mary. And again, in our own egalitarian age, I am not known as Michael, the son of Paul Claus. I'm known as Michael, the son of Paul Claus and Debbie Claus. My whole life, I've been identified by my parents. Whatever parents you have, that's what you're identified by. But in, in their culture, you never identified anybody by their mom. You always identified them by their father. Always. So then people try to explain, well, oh, well, Joseph was probably dead, and it's the only parent he's got. Even then, It's clear, if you go in the historical record, he is called the son of Joseph, even if Joseph was dead. So why would they all of a sudden say the son of Mary? Now, and and I find, right, the, the better you know people, the more they know about you, the more insulting they can be. He grew up in this town, and they're saying, oh, the son of Mary. Now, why would they do that? Well, because most of these people remember there was this betrothed young woman who suddenly got knocked up. She's just knocked up all of a sudden. right? And there's some stories, I guess, about an angel or whatnot. But how do we know who the father was? How do we know? Could have been a Roman soldier. right? I mean, these, this day and age. Could have been Zeus for all they know. Because those stories, I don't know how many of the Greek myths are about Zeus coming down and impregnating somebody. Right? They're willing to believe all kinds of terrible things and insult him in the synagogue in front of his own family members. Right? There's his sisters and brothers, and I, hey, you just called his mom a whore in front of everyone. Because that's what you're saying. We don't know who his dad is, so we can't say he's the son of somebody. He's the son of Mary, and whatever happened there happened there. You know what I'm saying? I don't know where he got these powers, but woof. They're calling him a bastard in church. Now this is totally lost on us in English. I mean, you read this, you have no idea how insulting these people are being on the surface of it. But they are so, am- I mean, and what, we go back, what has he done? He preaches the kingdom of Christ is coming, and, and he raises 12-year-old dead girls who had died of a fever. And that angers them so much so that they're willing to call him a bastard in front of his own family members in his, the synagogue in which he was raised. They don't want to have nothing to do with Jesus. Where does he get off? Where does he get off? They find offense at him, but who's being more offensive? Who's being more offensive? Now, what's interesting here is they mention his brothers. They mention his sisters. And so what you're seeing here, this is what I love, even in the family of Jesus, you're seeing into. Because the story of the gospel is a big story for the, for the world, for the cosmos. But what you're seeing here is into the sort of the inner workings here, the inner politics of this one family. Imagine being, ha- having been raised with this young man, Jesus, and now he's going around acting like he's somebody. And you know he's nobody. I remember when he used to have dreams in the middle of the night and cry, and I had to go comfort him. I remember the fact that he never cursed. People who don't curse, ki- curse are weird, right? And even in our own culture, this is considered strange. Oh, look at Mr. Too- High, High and Mighty over here, who never says any word he never shouldn't. And yet he always beat up the bullies, right? Jesus is a confusing character. He always knew what to, what to do, and that always bothered his brothers. Can you imagine having such a brother? I mean, my brothers aren't even perfect, and they're annoying. But imagine having a brother who's perfect, Right? He always remembers mom's birthday. He's always nice. You're trying to insult him as much as you possibly can. You keep putting him in the sleeping bag and rolling him down the stairs, and he just goes about his merry way. Never gets angry. That would infuriate me. Infuriate me. But imagine what it's like then to try to be in this tiny town trying to raise your family well trying to be a good Jew and you've got this embarrassing brother who's going around doing all these sort of kooky things one minute he's down in the synagogue telling everybody he's the kingdom of heaven himself then he's over apparently off in some tombs casting demons out or something I don't know right I'm just trying to do my work I'm just trying to go around and be a good Jew and you got this brother who's embarrassing you and, and maligning you and, right? Now he's, he's come to a, the synagogue where I gotta come every week with my kids and he's up there acting like he's somebody and he's infuriated everybody else I go to church with. Imagine having such a brother. Right? We think our families are complicated. Think how complicated it is for this family. And there are stories. Stories from history. His brothers' grandkids were hauled into to see the emperor at one point because people were accusing these these children, these grandchildren, of, of of acting like they come from a royal family because everywhere these people go, by by right, Jesus's brother, the grandkids. Think that's two generations, okay? Even then, people were treating members of Jesus' family like they were the royal family. And these people still didn't want anything to do with him. They went in to see the emperor, and they showed their hands and said, how could we be from a royal family? Look at our, our working class hands. And they weren't executed like other members of his family were. So not only is he embarrassing to his brothers, I mean, he is doing things that affect the family, inner workings of the family for generations. That is a complicated thing. And I think it's important... That God lets us see into this story, because oftentimes when we think about the gospel, we think about reconciliation, we think about what it's, what it's talking about, is it's very grandiose, very large-scale ideas. But I mean, Jesus had to go through it in his own family. He understood being an embarrassment. He understood being embarrassed by. He understood about being insulted because of who your mom and dad are. He understood about, right, I don't know about you, but I have had instances where I've both embarrassed my family and I've been embarrassed by my family. And Jesus has gone through the same thing. That that makes him very human to me. Very human. And the most shocking thing of all, right, there's James who used to throw him down the stairs and he could never get Jesus to get mad no matter what he did. Right? He's always flicking Cheerios at him. He's doing something. Could we just get this guy worked up a little bit? And James writes the book of James. James goes on to be a pillar, an apostle, believing that his brother was the son of the living God, the king of the cosmos. He's put, right? By the time we get to Acts 15, who are Peter and Paul going to, to figure out between the two of them about the dilemmas they're having with the Gentiles. That's what I love about that section in Acts 15. Peter is clearly not the original Pope. That argument is silly because James is. And how do you know James is? Because you go to Acts 15 and there's all the apostles and everybody takes their turn and who's the last one to speak? Well, I don't know about you, but in my house we have a family meeting and we generally start with the youngest. Peter, what do you think? Whatever. He mumbles. You work your way up. And generally, the last person to speak is either my wife or myself. Now, why is that? Because we have the most authority. You go to Acts 15, and you got Peter talking, and you got Paul talking, and then the guy who stands up at the end to make the decision is James, the guy who used to throw Cheerios at Jesus. Like, I I mean, seriously, that is astounding to me. It's not astounding that they would be offended by him. It's not astounding that they would hate him. They would not, it's not astounding that they think he's out of his mind. What's astounding to me is that they would come to believe in him as the son of God. Think of what is required for your brother to think that you're the son of God, right? I can, I can sometimes hardly get my brothers to believe I'm a Christian. <laughs> Inner family politics, it's true though, right? There are certain things Christians don't do. They don't smoke cigars. Right, And so the family's like, well, that guy, who does that guy think he is? And it's true. And and imagine what you would have to do to to convince them you're the son of of the living God. So you think your family is complicated. Jesus knows all about it. He knows all about it. Right? This is just one more area where when you're struggling and you're, and you're trying to figure out what to do, you're trying to figure out how to react, you're trying to figure out how to act, he is the one who knows all about it. He is the perfect mediator. You've got a difficult brother? He He's willing and ready to hear a few things about that. And I mean, his sisters, think about it. This is their synagogue. The brothers might be out wandering around from time to time, but generally here the, the girls have married and they've settled down into town and, and they love their husbands, but then they've got this brother that is embarrassing them all the time. And they've always loved him. He's so cute and loving, right? He always brought them flowers. He was always very tender hearted when they got hurt. He was never, ever, ever mean to them. And now what they're doing is he's coming in here and he's embarrassing me and my husband in front of all of our friends and neighbors. So either way you cut it here. Jesus understands what we go through. There's one last word that I want to explain linguistically, and it's very important. If you go down to verse 3 at the very end of it, this is what it says. It says, they took offense at him. They took offense at him. Now, I've already made it clear, right, about how they've reacted but that word is, is where we get the word scandal. They were scandalized by what he was saying. They were scandalized by what he was doing. Now, think about that word for a moment and what that means, right? Scandals are like things that presidents do when they write with interns. That's a scandal in our world. And they find what Jesus is doing on that level. Scandalous. Because what? He raises a dead girl. He heals a demoniac. He preaches the kingdom of God, and that's scandalous. But that's not the only way that the word is used. This is another way to translate the sentence. They were being caused to stumble, they were finding him to be a stumbling block. That word offense is often actually translated as fall away or stumble or or fall down. That's how it's used. When you're walking along the trail hiking and you're having a great time and you're listening to the birds and then you catch your toe on a root and you go falling down. That's what it means. Or you believe in, right, you're a Jew and then you get unclean and you fall away. That's also how it's used. And so they didn't just take offense. They're not just scandalized. They're falling down. They're stumbling. And they're stumbling because the, the, the local boy the boy who's from our town, thinks he's the son of God. And and that is impossible, that is wicked, that is vile. I don't care what he's doing. I don't care who it's helping. But think of it. They're calling what's good wicked. They're calling light darkness. They're standing up in front of his entire family and calling him a bastard in public. Right now, they're gnashing their teeth at him. And 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 this is why this section of verses forget about his brothers and the perpetual virginity of Mary, right? That is just such a massive distraction to this. It says in Psalm 118, verse 22 through 24, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The very thing, the very thing that David is preaching in this psalm. The thing that he's prophesying about is coming to pass. I I don't know about you, but I've always considered this idea of like, oh, he's the stone and they stumbled over him and then he's the cornerstone. I always thought it was just a really cute metaphor. I just thought it was a cute metaphor. Okay, that that helps me make sense. But what is always fascinating about this is Jesus isn't just, he's not just some vague metaphor, right? He's not just fulfilling the types and shadows of the Old Testament in some vague way. He comes and he's he is bringing the kingdom of God to, the, to, to God's people and it's causing them to stumble and fall. Just like they said. Just like they always said it would. He elaborates on this idea in Matthew 21, verse 42 through 43. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. See, the preaching of the gospel, the coming of the kingdom, separates. It divides. It's antithetical. There is a war going on. It's not just the simple, you know, oh, say these four spiritual laws, say this simple prayer, Let's be all let's all make sure we're very nice, right? This is modern evangelicalism. Don't annoy anyone, don't offend anyone. And here Jesus is going in his home town. His hometown. There's grandma so and so who used to make the muffins all the time that I loved, and he's willing he's willing to give them offense. He's willing to do it. He's willing to he's willing to right? In some way darken the door of his own family to say that his own family are not of the people of God. He's willing to do that. He's willing to be offensive. Now, why? Why? Because it fulfills the word of God. He's not coming gently and softly like a summer breeze, hoping that he doesn't bother anyone, hoping that he doesn't stir anything up. He's coming in and he is dividing, tearing asunder, ripping down. I said it a few sermons ago. This is a one-man wrecking crew. Look at what he can do. This man can walk into a synagogue and, and essentially set the building on fire with what he's preaching. He doesn't mind people stumbling and falling and bruising their knee. Well, that doesn't seem very nice to me. Oh, it doesn't? Well, then let's just you know make sure that everyone is just comfortable and happy and, and find us to just be the most pleasant, soft-spoken people ever. Well, wait, Mike. what did you just say? No, hey, Peter says it when he's talking about apologetics. He says, give a reason for the hope that lies within you and do it with gentleness and, and kindness, or something to that effect. But, that, but there's a time and a place for that. There's a time and a place for that. There's also a time and a place to go into your own church and say a few things that get people a little more than riled up. Say a few things and, man, everybody has fallen all over the place. People are standing up and insulting one another in public. And, man, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're headed in the right direction. You want to see the kingdom of God come? I'm going to tear down the old thing. I'm going to build a new thing. I'm going to do it with my words. Right? Because what does he say? He doesn't come in there and openly insult anyone. The the definition of a gentleman is is someone who never insults anyone on accident. (laughs) And I love that definition. Because Jesus is, is the penultimate gentleman. How does somebody come in preaching love, preaching God the Father, preaching the Holy Spirit, and set the building on fire? Well, here we go. This is the man. He's come to stumble people in Israel. He is come to shake things up. He has come to mess with the status quo. This is what Peter preaches of Jesus, in Ch- in Acts chapter 4. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has come, has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there was no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astounded, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Oh, these guys never really learned anything from a real rabbi, and they're going around into the seats of Jewish power telling people things that are offensive. You think the law of Moses is going to save you? No. Jesus is going to save you. He's the stone that you guys already rejected. Do you know how you rejected him? You took him outside the town and you nailed him to a cross and you murdered him. And that was your way to heaven. And it's gone now. It's gone we're here in his name, though, to teach you what you ought to do. And, and 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 they're like, oh, okay, we recognize these guys. We recognize who these people are of. Because they're willing, by their words, to burn the place down. To get everybody riled up. To get everybody stumbling. Everybody following. Everybody thinking. Everybody acting differently. And here we go. They, they called him a carpenter, and they didn't have any idea what they were talking about. He is the builder. He is the builder of the kingdom of God. They're like, well, he's just a carpenter. You bet he is. You bet he is. And watch him. First off, he's already demonstrated. He will come down, and he will tear this place down by himself. And then he will build it by himself. And that's what he says in the end. I, you can tell he's a builder because he uses, actually, if you go and you look in the gospel, so many building metaphors says, tear it down, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. Tear, the, tear it down. I've been, I've been going around for three years tearing your kingdom down. You tear me down, and in three days, you'll be pff, whole new thing. Whole new kingdom, whole new facade. How is he going to do it? They've called him the carpenter, and a carpenter's got to have blueprints. And, and what I love is this story packs so many punches. Because he says, well, you know, a prophet... Of course you guys are angry. Prophets, prophets always have honor, except in their own, amongst their own people. And, you're, and, 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 and if you haven't noticed, they ha, no one has referred to him as a prophet yet. Nobody has called him a prophet. Nobody's even asked if he's a prophet. And he says it of himself. And all of his disciples are there, and we've already seen that they are very confused and, un, and do not understand what he's doing. And he is let, this is him teaching them. They're going to look back on this, and they're going to be astounded by what he said and what he did. He just called himself a prophet. Well, what does Israel do to all the prophets? There you go. He murders them, or Israel murders them, right? They love to build monuments to the prophets, but they would have murdered those prophets. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're not going to see the face of Jesus again until you hear Peter preach about how he was a stumbling block, and you say, Yeah, you know, we rejected him, but now we want to accept him. That's the Lord, and this is the one who comes in his name. And and until you're willing to do that, right, your house is a desolation. The carpenter has come, and he's poked holes in the roof. He's taken all the doors and windows off. Your house is a desolation. There's jackals and wild animals in there, baby. And, and, And until he comes, and he puts the door, he puts the house back together the way that it was supposed to be from the beginning, that's the only way to have a house that's safe and warm and comfortable and is welcoming to anybody. He is a prophet. What do they do to prophets? They kill prophets. Now, this is a little confusing because in the last three stories, starting with the demoniac, the woman with the hemorrhage, and the little girl, he's demonstrated the fact that his real enemy that he's going to destroy is death. They're calling him a carpenter. He's got a grand design. He's going to defeat death. He's made it clear. But he's calling himself a prophet who are all killed, murdered. So this dude Man, he needs to sleep. He needs to stop preaching. His teaching is making him a little crazy, which is also what they said of, of Paul. His, te- his learning is making him crazy. How is somebody going to defeat death by dying? Well, turn in your Bibles to verse 7. Okay, what is going on here? Verse 7 says this, and he called the twelve. This is the next verse right after the end of the story. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. So Jesus goes to his own, and his own reject him. And the very next story is he's sending out the twelve. So chapter one verse, or chapter six, verse one through thirteen is the is the gospel story in, in just a tiny, just a couple of verses. Jesus comes to his own. He comes to a synagogue. They reject him. And so what does he do is he sends out the 12. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 19. So then, you, uh, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Who's, who's his family? The people who do the will of God. right? His family didn't reject him. He rejected them because they don't want anything to do with the will of God. He is making a new household. It goes on. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. right? He, they've rejected him. He now becomes the cornerstone. And the very next thing that he builds on top of it is the apostles and the prophets. What goes on in our story? He goes to his own town, and they reject him, and then what does he do? He says, okay, you're going to reject me, so I'm going to send out the 12. Well, how does the whole gospel story end? They've rejected Jesus by taking him outside the city and nailing him on a cross. Is that the end of his story? No. Because he's a prophet. They put him to death like a prophet, and wonder of wonders, he put to death death by doing so. He's like, okay, now what I've done is I've whooped Satan, I've tied him up, I've taken all his treasures. The most valuable treasure he had was death itself. Jesus comes and he takes away all the treasures. And he says, the house lies before you. And, he, and what does he do? He sends out the church. He sends out the apostles to go and to preach the good news. He's rejected and he sends out the 12. He's the foundation, what's built on top of it? The prophets and the apostles. The apostles. And then we read in 1 Peter, what is it? The living cornerstone makes the whole building alive. He's building a living kingdom, a a living house for his household to live in. And he's doing it one by one, stone by stone, through each one of you. That is what this story is about. Do you want to build a good marriage, a a God-fearing marriage? holy marriage do you want to build a business a god-fearing holy business do you want to build a church do you want to build a community there's only one way to do it and the foundation is jesus and on top of that is the apostles and prophets and then one by one generation by generation each one of the believers of jesus christ there's only one way to build the kingdom of god there's only one way to build anything if you're a christian and and this is the plan this is he's giving us the blueprint Now, I don't know about you guys, but I feel a lot of times like Adam and Eve. <laughs> Imagine standing there at the door of the garden, and you're looking at how many millions of square miles of emptiness. And God says, go and be fruitful and multiply and fill it. How, how might they have felt then, that first morning? And they're thinking, wait, what? <laughs> okay, I guess we'll cut this tree down and have a fire and then I'm, in the next couple of weeks we'll build a house and maybe a pig pen, and, right? You start slowly. How, how, did, how far do you think they felt like they got by the time they laid down in the, in the ground? Think of the apostles. There they are in the upper room. The Holy Spirit descends upon them. They feel more powerful. They feel more faith. They feel more capable than they've ever felt, and there's just 11 of them. And, and God says, go forth, and build my kingdom. How do you think they felt? I'm sorry. The, the the well, you know, unlike Adam and Eve, the world is full now, but it's full of pagans with their own lords, their own gods, their own governments, their own systems. And we've got to go out now and baptize all that and make it Christian. How, how overwhelming do you think that task felt? And and that is no different, right? That's no different than that first couple of weeks after marriage, where, where you think to yourself. I, I may have bitten off more here than I could chew, right? No, no, I, right? Not you. I'm not talking about you. No. But do you remember that day? I, re, I I distinctly remember the day. Sitting at Starbucks and I'm thinking, man, I, I mean, I love her just as much as I always did, but the poor thing. The poor thing. <laughs> right? You get a child. And that alone is, I mean, what do we do here? You're like Adam and Eve. On the, there's... This could go anywhere, and then you have two, (laughs) right? And then you have three on your third wedding anniversary, and you think, okay, well, this uh, is a little much, and then you have three more. You start a co-op, right? There's a lot of directions we can go with this. We feel like this all the time, all the time, and what we want is we want to build it some other way. Right, especially now, right? We the church has been at this for a while. It seems like there should just be a kit, like a shed. I could go down and buy it, right? A household of God. I'm going to go down to the hardware store and get me one of those. And even though I'm, I'm bad at following directions, I'm just going to put that thing together. It'll be easy, right? I remember at one point thinking marriage is going to be a lot easier now because there's so many books. It's like I mean, I love reading. Reading always hands, gives me the answers. And I thought, well, there's so many books. There's no way I can fail at this. Uh, uh, yeah, no one's laughing like my wife. He's the carpenter. How does he build? Well, he's the foundation. You come to him, you start there. What's the next phase? Well, what do the prophets and the apostles say? Well, Mike, come on, that's not sexy. That takes a long time. Right? I don't read Greek. I, I have no idea what genealogies and Genesis are for. Right? All this standard jokes. I mean, really, seriously. That's that's. You start with Jesus, and you go with the Gospels. There's four of them, and it gets a little boring when you start at Matthew. By the time you get to Luke, it's like, okay. And you want something more immediate. You want something that's a little bit more fun. Well, and then then you go out in the world and you start saying like, well, you know, one man, one woman, one marriage, one lifetime, and that offends like <laughs> half the world. And you're like, oh, that that didn't go well in the break room man, look at my Facebook page. I'm just going to go back to cat videos because I don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to walk too fast, go too far, say too much because we don't want to offend people. Right? Because we think that's Christianity, not offending people. Jesus goes in his own synagogue in his hometown and lights the place on fire. Now, young men, old men, Young ladies, old ladies. What I don't mean now is go on Facebook and be a jerk, right? <laughs> because I don't, even my own self, people say go out there and start a fight, and I'm like, done. And I go out and I say a word I shouldn't say, and man, everyone's angry at me. And I'm not talking like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm calling the boy who's clearly a boy a boy. It's not even that dignified. I say something I really shouldn't say that should never come out of the mouth of a Christian. And I'm like, oh, yeah, there we go. Fighting the good fight, baby. No, we, we live in fun, amazing times for this reason. And and, and we need to, to flip the switch in our minds. Do you know how easy it is to offend this world? Right? I do it every time I walk into Whole Foods with all my kids. Right? And we got three carts. And nobody can get down the aisle. Do you know how easy it is to offend people with the gospel? By just being it, by doing it by believing it, by understanding it. How do you build a good community? How do you build a marriage? How do you build a household? How do you build a co-op? How do you build a homeschool? You start with Jesus, and on top of that, you go with the apostles and the prophets. Well, I mean, but the apostles and prophets don't say anything about curriculum. Well, actually, it does. This says a great deal. It doesn't say anything about, you know, like, actually, like, I mean, it says raise your kids, but it doesn't actually give you any detailed help about that right that's why i have all these mommy bloggers who tell me what to do the the sin that we need to repent of is our is our failure to understand the sufficiency of scripture you start with jesus we talk about it all the time right jesus 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 he's the center he's the start you don't start there any other foundation is going to fail But on top of that, you guys, it's not Netflix. On top of that, it's not Wikipedia. On top of that, it's not your own wisdom. On top of that is the apostles and the prophets. And then what's on top of that? Generation by generation, faithful people, living it out, believing it, doing the small, unsexy, unfun, unflashy things. And and what I do not mean by that is the modern, vanilla, don't walk too fast, don't say too much. Where we don't bother anybody, right? We're just going to we're going to get a good job. We're going to hunk down in our ghettos and we're just going to play it safe. That's not what I'm talking about. We are the household of God. And what what was the household of God like? Look at Jesus. What do the apostles and the prophets say? It's the only way to build anything. The only way and this is what is, is so easily forgotten and what I will end with. That if I surveyed every person in this room and I asked for yourself, for your spouse, for your children, where should you be? Where should you be? I think we would all say, well, you know, not where, we're, we're not where we should be. Where we should be is here, right up here. All the talents that have been given to me, all the blessings, all the possibilities, all the opportunities, I should be up here. I don't want us to think that way. Where are you? That on, answer that question honestly in your, in your own life, in your own heart, in your own marriage, in your, with your own children, your own community. Where are you? If you can't answer that question honestly, you're not starting with the foundation of Jesus because Jesus doesn't meet you where you should have been. He never once meets people where they should have been. He always and forever meets people where they are. His compassionate love, his understanding, his yesed as this it's a word in the Old Testament that means his, his non-stop overflowing covenantal compassionate love that he has for us. This overflowing cup of blessing. Him and his love for you, he never goes to he never meets you where you should have been. He always meets you where you are. All it requires of you is being honest with yourself and with one another and, and with the people in your life about where you are. Where are you? Because there Jesus is waiting. And he, he want, he's a great carpenter. He's going to build something beautiful. But you've got to start with him. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you, Lord God, that he never gives up on us, that he never stops loving us, that he never stops providing for us. Lord God, I pray that you would teach us to be honest with ourselves and with one another about where we are, because we know that we will meet Jesus there, and that he will continue the work that he has begun in us, that he will continue to build. He is the great carpenter. And we pray, Lord God, that we would be honest with ourselves and one another, that we would not be afraid of giving offense, but that we would pursue truth and goodness and beauty just as your son did in every way. Amen.